Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Dr. Yaniv Altshuler, MIT Research Fellow and co-founder of Metha.ai, a company that creates personalized food supplements for cows, which increases milk and milk yields while substantially reducing methane emissions. Yaniv has written three books on artificial intelligence, holds 14 patents, and has published over 17 scientific papers. Welcome to the podcast, Yaniv. Thanks for having me. Well, you've been doing AI research for quite a while. would love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you got interested in artificial intelligence. Yeah, sure. Um, I first uh, started uh, really practicing AI, I think, over um, two decades ago when I was doing my uh, bachelor degree. Um, following which I uh, continued to my uh, PhD. And uh, specifically, my expertise uh, has been swarm intelligence. And swarm intelligence is uh, basically the study of large, complex systems um, that are often very dynamic uh, in nature, um, where we have uh, significant information shortage and uh, noise. Um, and uh, I'll give you an example. Imagine that uh, we want to find the person who has gone missing in a forest. And we have 5,000 drones uh, to our disposal. Uh, and each drone is equipped with a short-range camera and uh, limited uh, transmission capabilities. And um, we want this person found. We don't really care which drone um, detects it and um, uh, what is their configuration uh, and so on. Uh, also assume uh, that some drones may run out of battery or suddenly malfunction. Now, the question is how to design a decentralized swarm with no central control uh, that can guarantee a successful completion of this mission without knowing in advance the size of the forest, the shape of the forest, um, which drones are going to run out of battery uh, and so on. So this is an example of a swarm and an algorithm that can um, accomplish this uh, mission uh, is an example of, um, of a swarm intelligence. Uh, and this was actually the topic of uh, my PhD and also one of my books uh, was dedicated solely to this problem. It's the cookbook uh, for designing a swarm of drones. Um, and uh, over a decade ago, I joined MIT as a researcher uh, where I was working together with uh, MIT professor Alex Pentland. And um, there we try to see if we can use similar concepts in order to analyze different kinds of problems, again, as swarms. Uh, for example, we worked uh, with DARPA, it's the US Defense Advanced Research Project Agencies, uh, where we analyzed billions of encrypted phone calls and encrypted credit card purchases. Uh, and um, the idea there was to see uh, can we model this multitude of, uh, of individuals, not as a person buying this product or that product and, and, and calling uh, his friend or 
um, uh, you know, her mother or so on, but to see if we can uh, detect um, unrest or unease in this community and predict um, violent demonstrations or riots. And um, what we showed is that indeed this is possible. We can, uh, even though this data is encrypted, right? We don't know exactly what they're purchasing. We don't know who they are. And of course, we don't know what they're saying to each other. We can still use this data and apply uh, swarm intelligence techniques to it and predict with them much more accuracy than anything that was available until this point, um, emergence of a civil unrest. Uh, so this was, this was really fascinating because this was the first um, uh, example of, of uh, the ability to use these mathematical concepts in order to analyze encrypted data and produce valuable predictions. Uh, I can go on and on if you're interested. <laughs> no, no, this is, so, this is so interesting. So is the general premise, the idea that you have a somewhat constrained problem or a mission statement, so to speak, but with an unlimited number of variables, and you have to figure out how to solve the problem with an unlimited number of unknowns? Exactly. This is a perfect description. You touched exactly on the key point uh, in the conceptualization of, uh, of these problems, because when you know what are the right features, uh, the only thing you need to do, right, on, only quote unquote, the only thing you need to do is to clean the data, is to calculate these features, uh, and then run your favorite uh, machine learning algorithm and, and um, uh, come down with uh, the solution. But when you have no idea what the data actually encapsulates, what is the right formulation, what is the right um, feature space, the right way to take this data from something that reality introduces to us, which is always a messy, noisy uh, data that is not given in a canonic representation. How to take this thing and transform it into something that is machine learning friendly. When you, when you don't know how to do this, then you have no idea but, uh, sorry, no alternative, but to use something that is uh, domain agnostic. And this is exactly the techniques that we were working on. Uh, I'll give you another example, actually. Um, uh, I assume that uh, you're familiar with the, the company eToro. It's, yes. um, yeah, so they have millions of uh, retail investors and their premise is that everybody can see what everybody else uh, is doing. Um, and when uh, I arrived to MIT, uh, we were actually given live access to all of eToro's data. Um, when you- Can you just describe for people who might not know what eToro actually does? Yeah. So eToro is a, a trading, financial trading platform for retail investors. And they let you trade anything from equities through commodities, Forex, and also they were among the first ones to offer a crypto trading. Um, they are actually very similar to Robinhood, um, and, and they were actually there uh, before Robinhood were introduced to the market. And um, Itoro introduced the concept of social trading or copy trading. Uh, and the idea is, is, is actually very neat. It's basically saying, I cannot beat the market. I'm not a trader. Uh, I don't know how to spot uh, winning uh, stocks. And I have no idea if um, gold is going to go up or down. But if I'm given access to everything that everybody else is doing, I can actually spot winners. Uh, I can allocate my time and find uh, someone who is really good at uh, predicting when pressure, precious metals are going to go up or down. And then I'm allocating, let's say, 10% um, of my portfolio to automatically replicate what this person is doing and another 
5% of my portfolio to someone else that I uh, um, uh, detected is really good at uh, crypto trading. And then I can actually make money out of other people's um, knowledge or ability to predict the market. And if someone loses their edge, I can just cancel my, co my copy trading and start following other individuals. And um, when it all just started, it was a very good idea, but still needed to be tested and proven. And over the course of, uh, of two years at MIT, this is exactly what we've uh, done. We took their data and analyzed it, and we actually showed that uh, copy trading works, social trading works under some conditions that we mathematically formulated. Um, we can tell you that a network of retail investors uh, is now a suppressor for noise and an amplifier for, for um, valuable signals. So in other words, we can tell you today, you should be a member of the Toro network because statistically speaking, it would increase your ROI. Um, and let's say tomorrow we may tell you, this is not a good idea to, uh, to engage in this trading. But statistically, um, if I remember numbers correctly, in around 90% of the days, it was actually a very good idea uh, to, to do copy trading in Toro. Uh, so this actually showed you that a bunch of retail investors working together created this super brain that can outperform the Warren Buffetts of the world. And uh, the, the pinnacle of this research was that we actually uh, did a field test. It all donated a million dollars, which we uh, handed out to retail investors, members of this network as um, uh, trading recommendations, copy recommendations. We basically told you, here is some free money. And we think that you should be following that guy and you should be following these specific investors. And we had three different groups. It was like a clinical trial for drugs. One group was completely random. We were giving random recommendations. Another group was what you would expect to be the best strategy. Namely, um, we looked at the last month's top 100 traders and we would just give you randomly one of them to copy. Um, which, you know, is something that makes sense. And the third group received the recommendations that try to change the composition of the network, namely to copy individuals, not because we believe that they would make good decisions, but because we believe that by copying them, we change the information flow in such a way that the ability of the network to make better decision improves. And this was... A double blind test. Nobody knew who belongs to which group. The uh, VP of R&D at the time uh, sent these recommendations. Uh, and uh, we waited a week and then we looked at the results. And uh, it was fascinating because the random recommendation, as you would expect, achieved no change at all. Copying the best traders from last month improved significantly the performance. I mean, this is what it is all about helping you make better ROIs by following other individuals. But copying other people in order to improve the network outperform more than twice compared to the follow the best traders. And wow. this was quite amazing. Yeah, it was uh, published on the Financial Times and there is actually a Harvard uh, um, a case study by um, uh, Harvard dedicated to, to this uh, work. So. This is, again, an example, exactly as you said, given everything that the financial traders are doing, how to take this data and represent it in a way that enables you to give recommendations. I mean, 
you wouldn't even know how to start, right? Yeah, it's interesting too that the analysis was that it kind of goes back to the wisdom of the crowds theory in general. And, you know, we've seen in many different ways how true that proves to be. So it's really interesting that your research actually showed that too. Yeah, exactly. Um, But but again, if you just say wisdom of the crowd um, and you don't take the necessary mathematical steps in order to model it correctly, then it would usually work, but sometimes it wouldn't. Because uh, what we've shown is that sometimes there is this shockwave that the, the followers um, actually move faster than the followee. And um, then they actually start doing random stuff and it's not good. So you need to know mathematically how to guide the wisdom of the crowd in order to help it um, last as long as possible. How do you decide where to point some of your research efforts in terms of applying the swarm algorithms or some of the other research? It seems like these problems are very diverse, which is probably fun for you, but how do you, how do you get new areas of research? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, actually, at MIT, it was easy because uh, we were constantly swamped by interesting challenges. Uh, so we had the luxury of uh, just uh, picking uh, what uh, seemed most interesting. <laughs> so we spent some uh, several years working with MasterCard and working with some uh, Fortune 500 um, use companies, helping senior management um, understand their data better, understand their customers, predict trends, find behavioral patterns. Um, and um, uh, as you said, this, is, this requires the combination of uh, large systems, uh, a lot of data, and the lack of a... a you know, a killer feature, the inability to solve this uh, in an analytical way and say, uh, yeah, we know this is the the, the right solution. So this is what we should be doing. So um, when the system is dynamic, uh, involves uncertainty, uh, changes, this is where you should be using these um, domain agnostic um, uh, solutions. For example, we were working with the MasterCard and uh, when COVID hit, uh, suddenly all the machine learning uh, solution that MasterCard and, and other banks and credit card operators um, uh, that we worked with were using stopped working because suddenly all the features, uh, you know, they stopped making sense. I mean, the data changes, uh, the feature changes, n- nothing seems to, to, to make sense anymore uh, except the, um, uh, the approaches that don't rely on semantic features. So uh, this is actually one of the main benefits. It is uh, high resilience, high resilience uh, and the ability to work with new uh, problems and um, new kinds of of data and, of course, encrypted data. When you're working with a large enterprise like a MasterCard or anybody else who might come to MIT, do they know what problems they're trying to solve or are they looking for you to even help them identify where this type of work can be applied? This is also a very good question. It's the combination of both. So usually they arrive with one problem. And then when we um, show them how we approach uh, data and how we approach their business, suddenly they realize that we can help them with an abundance of other problems, uh, some of which may even be more interesting than the ones they arrived with originally. Yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine there's a lot of things that they didn't even realize could be solved, (laughs) which is is fun. How, 
I've heard a lot about the MIT Media Lab over the years. I've seen various groups, but it seems like an eclectic mix and it seems like an eclectic group of researchers in general. How does it actually work? Um, yeah, this is a, a great way of, of characterizing the Media Lab. It's basically like a circus of uh, <laughs> the, 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 the best people in the world that um, uh, try to make a difference. And um, there is a common thread. It's, it's, the, it's the media lab in the sense of uh, the medium of communication between individuals. So anything that can somehow affect um, human life. And it can be anything from printing buildings, uh, 3D printers uh, to, for self-assembly buildings to um, what we were doing, which is um, uh, social physics, understanding human dimension, human data, and so on, uh, through cutting edge uh, image processing, um, innovations in music, like anything. And um, the, the motto, the motto used to be uh, demo, it's DOD, demo or die. And uh, if you didn't uh, graduate uh, with a, a demo, then uh, it was like uh, you didn't uh, fulfill the expectations. But then it changed, it, it remained DOD. But from demo or die, it uh, upgraded to deploy or die because just a demo is not enough. You need to deploy it. Yeah, build a prototype, start a company. This is an integral part of your uh, master's or PhD. Uh, and we even have a small VC inside the media lab that actually gives you grants. And then you can uh, also uh, apply for the big uh, MIT engine uh, fund. So be creative, be innovative, be disruptive. Deploy, you know, the worst that can happen is that, you know, it wouldn't work as well as you thought. Okay, this is a risk worth taking. It sounds a little bit like Google X, you know, take those yeah. moonshots and, you know, kill the ones that don't work, double down on the ones that do, spin them out, turn them into companies. Exactly, exactly. And I would even bet that there are uh, many people from the media lab that you can find in Google X. Similar mentality. You. I'm sure that's true. Well, is that what you're doing now with Mepha? Is that kind of you're pointing your arrows, so to speak, in this direction to start a company? Uh, yeah. So about a year ago, I was approached by a team of um, researchers and investors, um, and uh, they were very active in the ag tech space, and they wanted to consult with me. And specifically, what they wanted to, to talk about was cows. Now, uh, at first thought, I said, wow, like this is probably the most unsexy thing I can think of, right? I mean, uh, cows, okay? Uh, let's talk about cows. But then uh, the more I learned um, and, and the more I got my hands uh, dirty, uh, pun intended, uh, I became like uh, really captivated by it because apparently cows, um, and, and, and some people know it, but, but many people don't, cows are the single largest pollutants in the world uh, in terms of methane, methane emission. And, and actually, if you, if you imagine all the cows in the world as a country, they would rank second between China, after China and before the US in terms of methane wow. emission. That's yeah, crazy. Cows, it's, it's crazy. Uh, cows burps are nearly 20% of all the methane uh, emission globally. And um, methane is, is much more uh, potent in terms of uh, global warming uh, than CO2. It's, it's actually almost 30 times stronger. It has a much stronger uh, effect. But not only this, unlike uh, carbon dioxide that takes about uh, 20 years 
uh, to um, uh, you know to evaporate, uh, so to speak. Uh, methane only takes uh, two or three years, which means that if you can reduce methane emission now, you would see the effect in the very near future, unlike planting forests and so on, which is great and we should be doing this, but you would see the effect only in a couple of decades. If you deploy methane emission reduction techniques today, we would see the effect. I mean, people starting their PhD at the Media Lab now um, would, would actually be able to sense a change in the global atmosphere um, by the time they graduate. And, um, and so this is the opportunity, right? But, um, uh, but you know, when you dig deeper, you actually see that, um, that this is not the, the poor cow's fault because what happens is that um, they eat, right? And from the food, they uh, produce milk and meat. And of course they do other stuff, they live, but uh, for the farmer's sake, they're interested in the milk and the, and the meat. Um, and um, some of the cows, um, they, they are very efficient. They take most of the food uh, and produce uh, and turn it into milk and meat. Um, but uh, some of the cows, they actually uh, suffer from some digestion inefficiency. So some of the food, instead of being transformed into milk or meat, gets discarded away as burps, as methane uh, emission to the atmosphere. And, and this is a simple, like if we could just divert this energy, this excess energy, if we can divert it inside the cow's stomach to the production of meat and, uh, and the milk, then we would have like this win-win-win uh, situation because the farmer would uh, increase revenues, the revenues because they would be making more milk and meat from the same uh, amount of food. Um, and of course we would, decrease the number one pollutant uh, of, of methane globally. And also the cows would be happier because um, research shows that, um, and, and it's not so surprising. I mean, if we have a good digestive system, we also feel much happier, <laughs> right? Uh, so cows have a higher, a longer um, uh, longevity um, and they feel better. It's, it's their well-being and so on. So everybody wins. And the question is how to do it. And um, the answer is nobody knows. But there are some solutions, uh, some garlic extractions and some seaweed-based supplements and some um, microbes that, uh, that today uh, assume a, a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, here is a food supplement, take it, deploy it to all the cows, the ones that need it, the ones that you know, don't need it because they are already healthy. And um, you know, on average, it works. But, but it's like saying, um, here is this, you know, vitamin-based pill, give it to everyone. Some people are healthy, they don't need it. Some people are sick, but they have something that would not benefit from those vitamins. They need something else. If you don't diagnose them, how would you know who needs a medicine and what medicine? And uh, today, this is a, a very expensive and, and, and largely impractical. Uh, to take a cow and to understand if it's going to emit a lot of methane or not, and if it does, then what's the right treatment? This is uh, extremely complicated. Uh, and even uh, with the cutting edge uh, techniques, it's, it's extremely expensive. Um, so today, um, if you want to deploy these solutions, they are really, um, most of the farmers will tell you that it's too expensive for them to experiment. And um, uh, if they, they purchase it, then, the, you know, they would uh, use it uh, in a limited way and they try to experiment and find which one is best for them, but it, it's a difficult sell. 
And what we realize is that um, if we can model the digestive system, if we can uh, take a sample from the cow's gut fluid, the, the microbes, the, cow, the cow's microbiome, the microbes that are actually doing the heavy lifting of taking the food and you know, turning it into energy. And if we can analyze this data, then we can answer this problem. This specific herd, it's a healthy herd. They don't need any help. But this herd, they are going to produce a lot of methane and they would really be benefiting from this specific cocktail. Now, this is a very complicated problem, actually like a computational problem, not so much a biological problem. And this is like a purely swarm. It, it like uh, cries, please use something that is domain agnostic because we don't really know what microbes are playing roles, any, every role there. And the data is messy and noisy. And um, uh, when you take the data and run it through a genetic sequencing, you get, you get millions of, of, of segments of DNA that you need to piece together. And nobody has been doing it with cow's microbiome. So nobody knows how, right? So very difficult problem that people don't want to touch. And we said, wait, this is exactly what we're good at. This is exactly what we can, you know, what we can do <laughs> with, with the, the, the approaches that we were using for the past decade. Um, and uh, this is what we're doing. So uh, it's a very initial steps, but we have already first uh, proof of concepts and um, we can take this sample from the cow's gut, analyze it and tell you these cows are similar. These are going to produce a lot of uh, methane. These cows should be left alone because um, their digestive system is intact. And finally, you can basically diagnose cows. It's cow's intelligence. <laughs> this is so cool. What? Quick question, do all animals emit methane or only cows? And if so, why, why do cows do, emit so much? Um, well, I think that all animals do and rumens uh, much more. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, cows uh, uh, are the, 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 the most dominant uh, component in, uh, in the emission. I don't know exactly why, because I'm not a biologist. And um, you know, happily so, I try to not go into the understanding. I actually believe that when you, I mean, understanding is good, but when you try to understand something that is very complicated, you immediately subject yourself to bias. And sometimes it's a bit presumptuous to, to assume that you understand something that is very complicated as our digestive system. And uh, if you assume that you understand what's going on there and try to tweak it, then uh, again, this bias may, may actually uh, come down and, and, and hunt you uh, later on. So I believe in a purely data-driven approach. Mm -hmm. Give me the data. Don't tell me what it is. I don't want to know which microbes are there. I want to take the data. I want to look for statistically significant signals and patterns. And I want to use only those. I don't want to understand. I don't want it to make sense. I want it to be like uh, scientifically statistically significant and to work. And then we can also understand why, because uh, at the end of the day, it's important to understand. But do the math first and then understand what you got. I think that this is the right uh, approach. How are you taking the data that you get from the cow microbiome, finding sig sig statistically significant information, and then translating that into the personalized cocktail? How do you go from the kind of the data science piece to then the actual physical product? Yeah, so the first uh, phase was to 
predict which herd is going to emit a lot of methane and which herd is going to uh, be uh, left alone, uh, so to speak. And um, for this, what we need is to measure uh, methane emission and uh, compare it to the microbiome. And um, we actually purchased this uh, portable sensor. Uh, you have to stick this uh, plastic tube down the, down the cow's nostril for 30 seconds, and it, it sucks some air and then <laughs> analyzes it. Yeah, it sounds crazy. I mean, I was you know, shifting from analyzing credit card data and blockchain data uh, uh, for um, you know, uh, sticking metal uh, plastic tubes in, in nostrils and, <laughs> and measuring. measuring <laughs> I'm sure the cows don't love that. <laughs> no, no, it, it's fine. It's fine. It's, you know, a cow is a, is a big uh, creature and it's just a small plastic tube for 30 seconds. Uh, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, this is enough in order to predict the next phase. Um, for which we have preliminary lab results, but we are still going to do the big field test. So this is not um, done yet, is actually to take several hundred cows and to predict which cocktail, um, I mean, to measure which cocktail works best and then to, uh, to use the, the, the same methodology that I described in order to predict what should be, uh, should be applied. But the advantage is that when new elements are introduced, when a new um, avocado-based, uh, you know, supplement is being approved uh, by the FDA or you know whatever it is, um, and uh, and available, then we can automatically add it to the composition. So we are generic. We are focusing on the analytics, on the data aspect, uh, the predictive aspect, um, which means that to your earlier question. And we can also later on migrate to sheep, to, uh, to fish, um, methane emission from, and, and carbon in general. Uh, in, in ocean microbiome is, is also a huge problem. And um, of course, we focus just on cows from a business point of view now. But later on, the same approach can be used on other domains because it's, it's generic. It's agnostic to changes uh, in the, the environment and the type of data. When you talk to either the farmers or people more on the kind of climate change side, what percentage reduction in methane would be significant and significant enough for people to want to use this? So the, so the farmers, of course, they are interested in reducing methane emission in general, like all of us, but um, uh, they are more interested in increasing revenue. But luckily, this is uh, actually the same because um, when you reduce methane, it is translated to increase yield. So um, for them, you can uh, demonstrate something like a 10 to 15 increase uh, in yield, which is, which is uh, very significant for the farmer, uh, given the fact that 60% of the overall costs of farmers comes from food. So if you can increase in 10 or 15% the efficiency of, uh, of food digestion, then for them, it's a huge increase uh, in revenues. Um, and um, uh, as I said, uh, or maybe I didn't say, but the, the products that are available today, because they take this uh, average um, uh, one-size-fits-all approach, they uh, achieve uh, around 20% reduction. And um, the work done in the lab showed that you can decrease up to 90%. And we believe, yes, it's, it's, it's quite uh, substantial, yeah. And we believe that we can aim for between 50 or 60% reduction. 
So I think that we can get um, two to three X more than the available products today. And your business model was particularly interesting too, in the sense of trying to give the product away for free. It's a, you said the word win, win, win before. So you give the product for free, the farmers get better yields, and then the government is providing these carbon offset credits, which then the company takes. So talk, talk through that and kind of who is involved in this complex ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. So it's um, uh, the, the traditional model is offering this product to the farmers and then convincing them to purchase it. And they may or may not purchase it. And as I said before, it's a long and cumbersome process to understand exactly which uh, product is the, the, the best fit for your herd. And um, because they're constantly like, you know, flirting with the profitability, um, then they are a bit reluctant of making these um, investments uh, whose return is not guaranteed. But um, when we offer them a complete uh, funding, basically we tell them this is a turnkey solution. You sign here, I send my veterinarians, they take a sample, they, I send it to genetic sequencing, which is also uh, something that costs um, uh, uh, some money and unnegligible amounts of um, uh, investments. And then I come up with the right cocktail for you. I purchase it, I deploy it, and you benefit from the overall increase in revenues. And the only thing I'm asking in return is the ownership for the methane reduction. And this is my responsibility for trying to maximize it. So I, I'm taking the risk. Uh, it's my incentive to improve the technology, to improve the, the, the ability uh, to uh, reduce methane. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really good uh, alignment of incentives. Um, and then, um, I can either approach the government, uh, which is the regulatory market, or approach the voluntary carbon credit market, which is basically coming to, uh, going to other companies or sovereign wealth funds and telling them, you want to offset your carbon emission? Um, well, you can buy those credits from me. So this allows me to work with farms uh, working in countries where the government don't give subsidies. So um, uh, this actually uh, is a way to, to broker between farmers who are desperate to increase yield and would, of course, be very happy to reduce methane emission, operating in a regulatory regime that is not so friendly to this thing um, and still making money while allowing other companies who may be very rich financially but with no efficient ways of reducing methane emission to reduce methane emission, not themselves, but for these farms. It's a really, really smart model. Your point around incentive alignment, it also it's around core competency, right? Even if the farmers were able to show methane reduction, their core competency is not figuring out how to go and then sell these carbon credits. So it exactly. feels to me like a very, very smart model. I'm sure you've been asked this before, but you know, there's a lot of talk around the human microbiome. Have people asked whether this can be applied to humans? Um, we actually started by looking at human data because there isn't cow microbiome data available. We actually had to, to do it our own, uh, send our veterinarians to cows from um, uh, farms that agreed to, to work with us. So we started with the human microbiome uh, project data uh, and we analyzed it and um, we demonstrated the ability 
to predict who is um, uh, who is sick and who is healthy. Uh, so yeah, this can be applied uh, to human microbiome as well. And actually, human microbiome uh, work um, is much more advanced than cow microbiome. Uh, there are there are uh, microbiome transplants uh, today being done uh, with with great success. And um, I think that um, when our technology uh, matures, it would be great to um, you know. We need to find the right constellation business-wise, but to offer it um, in, in some form to, uh, to human treatments as well, for sure. This is seriously one of the coolest ideas I've heard in so long. I'm, I'm oh, very excited by this. This is so, so neat. <laughs> well, Yaniv, the question I like to ask at the end of everyone is, has there been a piece of advice that you've been given in your work or your personal life that's really stuck with you and are words you live by? Yeah, so I think that... Um, when I started my bachelor's degree, um, what I realized is that you mustn't hesitate taking the outside-the-box approach to problems. Because if there is a problem that everybody is doing it in a specific way, you can do it in this specific way and you can be very good. So it would be marginally better than all the other experts. But if there is something very complicated, then sometimes the crazy idea is actually what you should be uh, doing if you have a really good idea. I mean, disruption only comes from innovation and um, the willingness to, uh, to fail and, uh, I mean, to, to take the risk of failing. So I think that this is, this is something that I uh, um, was um, given the advice uh, when you know, I started my career and, and I tried to, uh, to follow uh, ever since. So yeah, don't afraid to fail if you believe that your approach is right and can work and can disrupt and the gains can be uh, orders of magnitude higher than just following everybody else's footsteps and improve marginally. It's so true. I love this so much. Uh, one of my colleagues and I always joke that if any of the ideas we bring to the table gets a very viscerally negative reaction from the team, that's something to lean into. There's something yeah. there. <laughs> exactly, because it annoys them. It means you, you struck a nerve. There is something deep that they don't want to, <laughs> yeah, to, to, to talk about. Exactly. And usually the best ideas are very polarizing. Yeah, exactly. Well, if people want to learn more about you and your research, where should they go? Um, my MIT uh, homepage uh, contains um, most of our research and uh, recent developments. Um, my, uh, my coming book, actually, uh, titled Applied Swarm Intelligence, talks about uh, some of the applications uh, that we and others have been doing. And um, you know, podcasts such as yours are places where I uh, like to share my thoughts. Well, I look forward to reading your next book. That sounds super, super interesting. Thank, Thank you. you so much for joining the podcast today, Yaniv. Thanks for having me.